morning, everyone. We are going to be starting and talking about prayer this morning. We're going to start in Matthew 6, if you want to be turning there. But as you turn, I have a question for you all as you think about your year that's gone by in 2022, and now you look forward to 2023. And as you think about what if God was to answer all of your prayers exactly as you prayed them over that period of time? Whether that period of time be just this morning, whether that period of time be the past week, or as you think back over the past year, what if God listened to exactly your prayer as you prayed them, and then he answered exactly the prayer that you prayed, specifically, directly, word for word as you prayed it? What would be your life? What would be different in your life certainly as you're praying for yourself, what would be different in the lives of those around you as you pray? How would those things be different as the Lord answers your prayers? And as we know, he has promised to answer our prayer. And, and the need to pray for others, it probably arose for you if you're in a small group, or maybe you were just talking with someone this morning before the service, and the person tells you something, and, and you say, that sounds like something that I should pray about. And if they're a student, perhaps they're talking about an upcoming test. Or I've heard some of you, there's people looking for a job. And we have brothers and sisters among us that are looking for a new house in which to live. Or others that are raising children and in the process of the raising of children, the Lord has decided to sanctify you and hopefully your children as well but definitely you as parents. And so this person that you're talking to in your small group or this morning, you agree to pray for them, right? That's what we should do. We agree to pray for one another. And we said, well, I will pray for you. That is probably the easiest part of the process, right? So we agree to pray for them. And then maybe you make the second part of the process a little easier by jotting a little note on your bulletin or maybe you're one of the prayer app people that... Uh, jots it down in your prayer app. So you've, you've got that second part of the process. And then let's say you actually remember to pull out that prayer app later in the afternoon or that note and you say, okay, I'm going to pray for that person. Now I think comes the hardest part, right? What exactly am I going to do? What exactly am I going to say on behalf of this other person to which I've agreed to pray for? And, and then, as we said this morning, what happens if God answers that prayer that you pray exactly as you pray it, what will happen in the life of that fellow believer, and what do you want to have happen in the life of that fellow believer? Think about that. What's going to be different in their life as you pray? And as I thought about it, I think about common prayers that I have, and these are intentionally pretty small right? These, are, these might be words that I say. You know, I want a fixed relationship. I want some strength for that other people. I might just say, I, I just pray for them. I, I pray for them. Well, like, well, pray what exactly, right? You know, maybe I want their marriage to get better. Maybe I want some stuff to be better for them. Maybe we do pray for the house or that the Lord changes their heart um, or that their issues, whatever they shared with me, it would get better for them. And as I thought about that, I think we can find 
some instruction for that in the prison epistles, as, you, as we saw in Colossians and as we'll look back in Ephesians and in Philippians this morning. But before we talk about exactly what to pray, that's where I had you start in Matthew 6, so hopefully you are there. And if you're not, it's on page 11 of the Bible in front of you. So this is Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he is going to talk about what is prayer. So before we talk about what to pray, let's talk about, well, what is prayer? What are we trying to do uh, when we pray? And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to teach the people about prayer, starting in verse 5 of chapter 6. Hopefully you're there. And he's going to lead right into the Lord's Prayer. So he says in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask it, or you ask him. So as Jesus is teaching, he says, first of all, that prayer is not a show for others. It's not about what we're going to pray, and we're going to impress other people. He tells us that in verse 5. And then he goes on to say that it's not repetition of certain words, even though he's going to give us a model prayer in the Lord's Prayer. It is not the magical chanting of that prayer day by day that is going to produce exactly what uh, we need. But then he says in verse 8 that our Father knows what you need before you ask him. So we are talking to God, and he already knows what we're going to say. He already knows about your friend in your small group and her need for help on the homework or help with her children. And he is going to answer that in his sovereignty. And so, as Dallas Willard says, prayer is talking with God about matters of mutual concern, that he already knows what we're going to say. He already is concerned by that. And he, we are having a conversation with him about these things of mutual concern. Uh, but we are not giving him new information. But somehow, he, as the sovereign king of the universe, is going to bend time and space, and through his sovereignty and through his power, he is going to change the course of history through our prayers about these matters of mutual concern. And then Jesus goes on and gives us the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13, and we'll briefly read that this morning. Pray then like this, Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So recall that first question this morning, what are we going to pray? What are we going to pray for our friend, what do we want to be different in their life, and what do we want God to accomplish? And in Jesus says in verse 11 that we're going to pray for daily bread. This could be called a petition elsewhere in the Bible. It can also be called a supplication. 
And if you are a middle schooler, you know better than most about supplications, particularly if you were here last year with Mackenzie Williams and you learned about supplications. But Jesus is going to tell us in daily bread that what is going to look like. And Paul gives us an example of those supplications and those petitions that he was praying for the believers in Ephesus and in Philippi and Colossae, and that is where our text is going to start this morning. And I uh, stumbled upon these prayers in trying to think about prayer and have enjoyed them and have enjoyed uh, memorizing them and thinking about them and praying, and hopefully that uh, can be of an encouragement this morning. So this morning we're going to study Paul's prayers, and you can be flipping over to Ephesians chapter 1 as we talk about that. And we're going to talk about the petitions that we make on behalf of other believers. And my long title that didn't make the bulletin is Paul's Prayers of Petition for Partners in the Gospel in the Prison Epistles. All right? And I'm hoping to impress a certain former English teacher that we all really like. All right. Although that's probably a violation of Matthew 6, 5, right? Yeah. Can't do anything, can you? All right. So we're going to start by reading the prayers. Hopefully you're on page 976, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start on verse 15. We're going to go to verse 23, looking at Paul's prayers for the Ephesian believers. Jeff read for us this morning his last meeting with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and that ties us to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, prayer in Ephesians, now the prayer in Philippians. Flip over just a couple pages to 980, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11 of Philippians. Paul praying for the Philippian believers, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's going to pray for the Colossian believers at the beginning of Colossians. One page over, two pages maybe in your Bible, a couple of screen flips if you're a 
non-paper person. Colossians 9, excuse me, chapter 1, 9 verses 14. Rob just took us through this several weeks ago. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, let's pray it before we dive in. Father, we ask for your spirit this morning to work in the heart of each believer, to consider the privilege of prayer for one another, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive back into the prayers, and you can be flipping back to Ephesians this morning, we're like, let's take a look briefly at the context of each of the letters. All of the three books are written by Paul as he's imprisoned in Rome in AD 61 or 62, somewhere in there. He also wrote during this time a fourth prison epistle, which was Philemon, and that was written to a specific believer in Colossae. So looking briefly at Ephesus, it's a port city that is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. It had about 200,000 residents, a very vibrant and a modern city for that time. It had a number of impressive buildings, including a 25,000-seat theater, and that is mentioned in the book of Acts as the Ephesians gather there in order to accuse Paul. And then it had a temple to the goddess Diana and the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and Paul faced persecution in Ephesus because of his preaching of the gospel and those for Diana were going to lose their livelihood. Paul founded this church during his second missionary journey and that's recorded in Acts 18, 18 to 21. Paul labored in Ephesus from approximately 52 to 54 AD, about 10 years, 9 or 10 years before he wrote this letter. And Ephesians is likely a circular letter that is in the form of a sermon. Perhaps the letter started in Ephesus, but there isn't a greeting or anything like that, and so it is being to be passed around to the other churches in the area. Paul spent more than two years in Ephesus. Jeff read this morning that in Acts chapter 20, he says he spent three years in Ephesus. He would have been joined in his labor during that time by other uh, first Christians of Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, Timothy, some believe the Apostle John, and then likely Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have been there too if John was with her. So Paul mentions that he has heard of their faith, and that makes a lot of sense. If you think about the people that went to church here 10 years ago, and Rob had people stand up last week, depending on when you started here, but if you think about how the body of Christ uh, changes over a 10-year period and people join he is writing to some people that he knew, but a lot of people that he didn't because of the number of people uh, that are different in the church. The letter is likely sent with the book of Colossians and with the book of Philemon over from Italy, where Paul is in Rome, over to uh, those cities in Turkey. 
briefly about Philippi and the letter to Philippians. Philippi was a Roman colony that is located on a great trade route, a northern east-western highway that linked the Roman territories. It is inhabited primarily by military veterans who were given a portion of land uh, as a result of their fighting in a civil war in approximately AD 42. Um, you would recall that Paul refounded this church from AD 49 to 51, uh, somewhere during his second missionary journey. This is the place of Paul's imprisonment where he uh, cried out, or excuse me, the Philippian jailer cried out, what must I do to be saved after the prisons were shaken? And this is a picture of the, the road. There's still some of the road left after uh, 2,000 years. The Jewish population was very small and they didn't have enough people to even have a synagogue. But this was a church that was beloved to Paul. They kept in close contact with him and they um, sent him gifts. It's recorded in uh, Philippians 4, verses 14 to 16, that they sent him a gift when he went to Thessalonica, which he did in Acts 17, 1 to 9, right after he got kicked out of Philippi. So then Colossae, as we know from our current study, is located approximately 100 to 120 miles west of Ephesus, and you can see it kind of in the middle there. Um, but Ephesus is on the coast and Colossae is inland. It's just a little bit south of Laodicea, uh, which is mentioned in Revelation and also at the, book, at the end of the book of Colossians. It was founded by Epaphras or Epaphras. Every time I hear it, it's a different pronunciation. Um, but uh, that was who likely became a believer while he was under Paul's teaching in Ephesus between A.D. 52 and 54. We know, as Rob has been teaching us, Paul didn't visit this church. He just mentions that he has heard of their faith, and he is excited by it, and that is why he is praying for them. Church in Colossae was largely composed of Gentiles, and the letter is to be read at Colossae, and then it is to be sent over to Laodicea, and they're supposed to exchange letters. Uh, the Leo, letter to Laodicea we don't have anymore. Uh, the church is... Uh, the city is no longer there. It's just some farm fields. There's a little bit of ruins. Scholars refer to Ephesians and Colossians as twin, epistle, twin epistles because approximately 78 of the 155 verses in Ephesians are also found in some form or another in Colossians. So with that level of background, let's take a look at how these prayers for partners in the gospel, prayers for other believers, let's go back to Ephesians. So back to those couple of pages in your Bible, back to chapter 1 and verse 15. And Paul is praying for these believers. And Paul has just finished in verses 3 to 15 a hymn of praise that talks about the greatness of their salvation. And then he says in verse 15 that he, for this reason, because of the greatness of the salvation that they have and that Paul has in Christ, and because he has heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he is going to make this prayer. And so he is praying this prayer to people that he knows have a faith in the Lord Jesus. And this is not just a, some sort of random faith, but the object of their faith is critical to the faith being something that matters. Right? You might talk to people during your week who have faith 
and it is important to them to be spiritual or something like that. But in this case, Paul is saying, you and I share a common bond in faith in the Lord Jesus. And it is this faith in the Lord Jesus that transferred the believers in Ephesus from life to death. And as we pause every Sunday, we are asking for each person to say, is this me? Is this me? Is this me that I am saying I have this faith in the Lord Jesus, not the person next to me or the person who suggested that I come here this morning, but am I the one who has decided to respond like these believers in Ephesus and like many of the believers here? Have I responded? Am I going to say that I have a faith in the Lord Jesus? And Paul details what that means as he talks about the process of salvation in chapter 2, where God is a holy God, and we, as it says in verse 1, are dead in the trespasses and in our sins in in once we walked. And we, with God being holy and with we being dead, we need a way to be made alive. And Paul details that it is by grace in chapter 2, verses 5, that we are made alive, And then in verse 8, he repeats again that it is by grace that we are saved. It is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. The gospel requires a decisive action on behalf of each person in order to have this faith in the Lord Jesus. And it is our first question before we say, what do these prayers mean to us? And can we apply them in the life of other believers to say, is this me? Do I have this faith in the Lord Jesus? So now, if we have this faith in the Lord Jesus, let's continue on. If you stop there, please talk to me or the elders or others who are here. We will give you the same answer that Paul gave to the Philippian jailer when he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But that is the first or the matter of first importance. So having turned from that and saying we're praying for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus, for other believers, let's take a look at themes from Paul's three prayers. We've read all three of them this morning. We're not going to be able to cover every single word and break everything down, but what can we look at for some themes and say, Paul is doing certain things as he thinks about these believers, and As we think about those themes, can they inform the way we pray for other believers? Can they help us think about our prayer life? So the first theme that I, that as I read it and I see these, I say, Paul's prayers are powerful. And we'll dive into that. Paul's prayers, and I went back to my P theme here, so. uh, Preoccupied with spiritual realities. He's thinking about spiritual realities for people. Obviously, they've got daily needs, but he's thinking about big spiritual realities. Paul's prayers are practical for everyday living. He's thinking about, obviously, there's there's big things that need to happen, but there are, day in and day out, ways in which we need God to be working in our lives. And then Paul's prayers are pointed to eternal truths. And I think it's remarkable that these themes repeat themselves or show themselves in these prayers because these are different cities. Paul knows the people differently. He knows 
you know, he's got a close friendship with the Philippian believers. They're his partners in the gospel. And he doesn't even know the Colossian believers, but he knows of their faith. And then the Ephesian believers, there would be a mix of those things. And so in each of these cases, Paul brings these uh, things forward. And let's take a look and take a look at the, each of the prayers through kind of those lens. So first of all, Paul's prayers are powerful. So if you think back to my list of things, and they were all a little small, and there's some intentionality in that. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that things go better for people, or I'm, I'm trying to see that the Lord would work in their life, right? But Paul has some powerful prayers as he is thinking for these people in Ephesians. And he's not just praying for some, some stuff to get better, I hope. He is praying that the Lord would make massive movements in their life. And let's take a look at that if you look at Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. So Paul is praying that in verse 18, chapter 1 of Ephesians, he is praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened and that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, okay, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So how, how often when we're praying do we feel that power that God has given us? Paul is praying that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power, that God's power is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. And we know that, those of us who follow Christ, it's because that power can change our hearts to take us from death to life, and it can change the hearts of others and take them from death to life. But Paul goes on to say that God's power is revealed in three key ways, and he, they are revealed in three examples in verses 20 to 23. First, in the resurrection from the dead in verse 20, so he, they, want to, they need to know God's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead in verse 20. So the first thing is the resurrection of the dead. Imagine that kind of power. Imagine that kind of power. That is the, the one thing mankind has no ability to solve. Are all of us are dying. And here it is that, that God has shown in Christ the power to raise the dead. Secondly, verses 20 and 21 describe the ascension in, of Christ and that God has seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places far above any rule or authority or power or dominion, not only in this age and, but in the age to come. So here is Christ and he has not only been raised from the dead, but he has now ascended to God the Father and he is seated with God the Father in God showing his power through that. And in verses 22 to 23, Paul goes on and he says he puts all things under Christ's feet. And he has given Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God has put all things under Christ's feet. He has given him dominion over all things. Paul continues his powerful prayers. Flip over to Ephesians with me. Back to chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And the power of his prayer is just shown in what he is saying. 
He begins by praying that their love would abound more and more with knowledge, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and all discernment. But he's talking about all discernment, right? The word here could be translated perception or discrimination or insight. And he is not just praying for these people to make a couple of good choices or perhaps choose between uh, just better things, but he is praying for them to have every insight and every perception and every decision be in accordance with Christ. For those of you who are the praying for your children, uh, think about that. You're praying, think about praying that they would have not just a little bit better choices than they've been making, uh, but praying that they would have all discernment, that they would have all of the discernment that God can give in them. Paul continues on in verse 10, and he is saying that they can approve what is excellent. They would not merely pick out something that is among good things, but they would find the very best thing, that they would find what is excellent even among a number of good choices. Paul continues in verse 10, and he says that they would be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, not just a little better, not just slightly improved, but they are going to be totally changed. They're going to be absolutely pure and blameless in the day of Christ. The word pure comes from the word for sunlight, giving us the idea that we can test this in the sunlight and find it to be pure. And then finally in verse 11, Paul is praying that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Not just a little righteousness, not just slight improvement, but they would be filled. And as I think about this in praying for others and thinking about this particularly in praying for uh, young people, if you are filled with the fruit of righteousness, there's a lot of things that don't fit anymore. And they, are, they have to go somewhere else because if you're going to be filled with righteousness, that's all that we've got room for. Turn over to Colossians. Let's see Paul's big prayers continue. Verses 1, 9 to 14. Again in verse 9, and that's familiar with us this morning, Paul is asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So all of our thoughts are going to be related to God and the truth that he has revealed. The next verse in 10 says that we're going to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and not just somewhat pleasing to him, but being fully pleasing to him. What a remarkable thing to be praying for other believers, even as we ask for them in fairly routine matters. Verse, continue, verse 10 continues on with a request for bearing fruit in every good work. Not just some of the good works, but every single work. Verse 11 prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Here we are. We see Paul saying this is the same power that God has used to raise Christ and now this same power can be at work in the heart of you, my fellow believers. So Paul's prayers are powerful. Second of all, and back to Ephesians here, second theme, Paul's prayers are preoccupied with spiritual realities. Clearly they have daily needs. Clearly they have physical needs. 
the Ephesians particularly live in a town of great paganism and a, a temple, but here is Paul praying that they would be preoccupied with these spiritualities. Back to verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. So Paul's prayer in verse 17 is that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. God is the him. They need to have a knowledge of God. The guy would have an understanding of these gifts that God has given them in verses 3 to 14, and then they would also have an understanding of God's power in chapter uh, 1, verses 18 to 23. And Paul prays in verses 18, as we read, that, oh, no, in 18, having the eyes of their heart enlightened, that we may know these things. So he is praying for their knowledge to be what God has said, and then he prays for their hearts to be enlightened. And this is not an appeal to their emotions, so to speak. They don't think about heart in the same way that we think about heart, but this is an appeal to their core and their existence and the headquarters of who they are. Turn quickly over to Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and we'll see these similarities. Paul in verse 9, praying again that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Same thing, that they would have a knowledge of God and that their knowledge of God would inform who they are and what they are doing. Turn over to Colossians. Same theme, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul's request that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will that they would know what God has for them. And God's God's word reveals most of his will, most of the things we need to do daily, although there's lots of application of that that matters in our life. The revelation of his will is largely complete. Let's go back. Our third point here is Paul's prayers being practical for everyday living, looking at Philippians for that. So back to chapter 1 of Philippians Paul, in verse 11, prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, that each day they would have this righteousness as they are completing whatever their particular task, whatever God is put in front of them. Flipping back to Colossians, you'll see a similar prayer in verse 10, that they would walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. And verse 10 continues that they would bear fruit in every good work, and they would increase in the knowledge of God. So as you think about your friend or your person in the small group to whom you are praying, how can you pray that, yes, they have a physical need that we can pray for, but can we see the way in which the gospel is impacting that need and producing this fruit of righteousness? Finally, fourth, Paul's prayers are pointed to eternal truths pointed to eternal truths, including our inheritance and the day of Christ. So let's look at uh, one in chapter uh, one of Ephesians in verse 18. And clearly these people had pressing daily needs, much like we do, much like that um, we share with others in our small group. But here is Paul in verse 18. He is praying that they may know what is the hope 
to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that may not sound very practical, but it is intensely practical as you think about what do you need to have on your mind, or what does your friend need to have on their mind as they go about, as they face whatever it is they're facing. They need certainly something temporal, but they need to see beyond that in how that temporal thing can be producing in them fruit of righteousness and producing in them an opportunity to see, yes, I need something temporal, but God is building me toward this hope to which he has called you. Turning back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul continues this theme and he prays that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And in each of the things that God is working in our lives, he is working us toward something, working us toward that purity and blamelessness for the day of Christ. Flip over to Colossians. As we finish up, Colossians finishes, Paul finishes his prayer in verses 12 to 14, continuing this focus on eternal truths. He ends with thankfulness directed in the gospel and the three realities of salvation in our verses, in these verses. First of all, that they would share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that they would see that they have a, God has qualified them to share in an inheritance. And that um, is a future inheritance, but it's also a present inheritance. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, a spiritual reality for those believers, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has done all of those things through the gospel, and those realities inform our daily prayers. So, that's a lot of a jet tour, right? trying to give you some themes, and trying to challenge you. What do we do with these prayers, and how do we, how do we think about them? What can we do as we, we think about praying for people around us? You, you pray for a student, and they have a test. You pray for somebody who needs a job. You're praying for somebody who's looking for a house. Um, you're praying for people to have discernment. And so, think about, think about how these prayers can be changing our hearts. First of all, what are our true needs this morning? What does Paul's prayer show us about what our true needs are this morning? For some of us, it may be that we need to be in Christ and that we need to take the first step and say, I am going to be identified with Christ. I am going to repent of sin and be found in Christ. And that may be our first need, even as Paul prays it. But for others of us, Paul's prayers show us that our brothers and sisters in Christ certainly have temporal needs, but what are also the ways in which these temporal things are either pointing to a spiritual reality or they are part of the process of making us pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Secondly, how can you use Paul's prayers when you're talking to God about matters of mutual concern? What can we do, not in that we need to, to memorize a certain prayer, but how does the way that Paul prays inform the way that we pray? That believer 
who is asking you for prayer related to an illness certainly does need their health to be improved. But at the same time, if they are a believer, they need to be more confident in their inheritance in Christ. They do need a greater knowledge of their inheritance in Christ, even as they're praying. And finally, I would encourage you very simply just to memorize these. And there's other model prayers. There's another one in Ephesians that we didn't even take time to cover. There's other places in which the writers of the New Testament tell us what are they praying and how can you think about praying for another person, not just that they would, they would be strengthened, that they would have strength for this today, but how can you say they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might as they face whatever that challenge is in their day? Let's close briefly in prayer. Father, we are grateful for you recording your word for us, giving us instruction in godliness for all types of things, calling our hearts to pray to you. We ask that you would work in the hearts of each person, either to be found in Christ or to desire to be in Christ, and that for those who are in Christ, to see and desire the knowledge of you and your power to be working in us even as we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.